0: Let's come back together, find our seats. Good morning. It is good to be back. How many of you are fans of Shark Week? Oh, I didn't know if there would be any hands. I actually haven't watched any of Shark Week, but then I've seen more ads for it. Is it great? Is there a show like When Sharks Attack? What is the fascination with this show? There we go. When sharks, the, the, this show is like, what, what is it? Is it watching people get attacked by sharks? I don't know. I haven't seen it. I, I'm, I'm hoping for help from some of you guys. Um, it's what? Oh, all of the you know, probably getting into the mind of the shark and all that. So I've heard that one of the ways that you can you can um, survive a shark attack is you punch it in the nose right? I mean, th- there's a myth about that, punching in the nose. Um, then someone, so I was, I was doing some research on that, and, the, and a lot of people said, yeah, you punch it in the nose. And I'm thinking, you're underwater. Punching is like, <laughs> tap. Um, as the shark is trying to eat you, someone else posted, yes, you can try punching in the, in the nose, but the only outcome is you'll still be eaten. All right, okay, check. No, not that one. Just swim away and make sure you're faster than whoever you're with and you're good, But um, which is getting harder as I get older now. Um, but what about when, when humans attack? What about when people attack? I would bet every one of us in this room has had a time we have felt like a person has attacked us. Whether it be through actions, whether it be through words, whether it be through situations that we are in that we just feel distraught and, and distressed. And I'm not talking about um, just light things like I don't like the color of your car or something like that. But, but just maybe false accusations or dealing treacherously or some way of attacking. How do we deal with that? How do we, we overcome that? And what's interesting is the Bible has a lot to say about that. And we're still in our series on Psalms, and we're going to be there a couple more weeks, and then we're going to jump back to Acts. But King David had a lot of experience with that. We were just in Israel the last couple weeks. One of the places we visited was in Gedi. And um, if we can go back to, to that slide or go to that slide, this is in Gedi. It's by the Dead Sea. And it's really um, sort of deceptive because it was taken with some greenery in it. This is in the middle of the desert where there's no greenery except in this valley because there's a, a spring and a stream. But one of the things we know is this is one of the valleys where David hid from Saul. And if you can see some of on, on the, the cliff face, there's little holes there. There are hundreds of those little caves that this is one of the canyons that David hid from Saul in. And, and we visited some other places where that happened, and, and the other side of the country, because David was running from Saul for a long time. He was anointed king, and Saul decided, "I don't like that," and was trying to kill him, and was saying all kinds of things about him, trying to attack, trying to kill him. We don't know if that's when the psalm was written, or it could have been written later in his life, when his son was trying to kill him, <laughs> to take his kingdom. He knew what it was, what it meant to be attacked. And he knew what it meant to have people oppose him and attack both him physically and his reputation and who he was. And so we come today to Psalm 25 because I think King David is a great person to read and to study, okay, how do we deal with attacks? How do we deal with difficult interpersonal situations? Not when sharks attack, but when people attack. And so turn with me to Psalm 25. Psalm 25. We've, we've covered Psalm 24 just a couple of weeks ago. And David's talking about having a right heart before God. He's talking about the sovereignty of God. And then in 26, it's also a Psalm of David where he's talking about, he's just pouring out his heart to God. This is a, a Psalm of lament. A Psalm of lament when attacked or when um, accused by other people. And so that ties directly into the prior Psalm about the sovereignty of God and living an upright life before God. How can I do that when people are claiming I'm not? How can I do that when situations seem to overwhelm the very sovereignty of God? And so we come to Psalm 25 and we'll look at six different Um, sort of phases that David went through or or stanzas that he went through that talk about, okay, what do you do when people attack? And he isn't giving us instruction like, do this, do this, do this. We are seeing him live this out where he did this, he did this, he did this. this. And it became a song, a song of worship to our Lord. And so in Psalm 25, and, and if I had to summarize the whole Psalm, I have that at the beginning of your notes. When attacked, draw close to God allowing Him to refine you through guidance, forgiveness, and dependence. When attacked, draw close to God, allowing Him to refine you through guidance, forgiveness, and dependence. And so we get to the the first item, the first three verses of the first stanza. And, And point number one there is trust God with the outcome rather than worry about the fallout. When people attack you, trust God with the outcome rather than worry about the fallout. We can get so concerned about our reputation. We can get so concerned about how this will turn out that we are just engrossed in all these details and we forget that God is the one that handles it. And God is the one that defends. And God is the one that protects. And so we trust him. Listen to these verses as David starts his song. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. And so in these three verses, we see David begin to introduce that he is feeling the pressure of enemies. He is feeling the distress of this. He's, in his heart, he's feeling the ache of this as he has someone out for his life. And he's being accused of things he hasn't done. And he starts with, to you, O Lord, and he goes to the right place. He's trusting God. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And and when we are feeling some of the distresses of life, this is the place to start. We can lift up our soul to the God of the universe, to the creator of the universe. We can go to him. And that's what David models here. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. I pour out my soul. I, I, I just share with you everything, God. No matter how ugly it is, no matter how hard it is, I share with you everything. But, but the, the wording behind I lift up my soul is also this idea, it includes a sharing with God, but uh, that God is the one that helps us and then lifts us up as we lift our, our cares up to him. And so it is a a confidence in turning our life over to God that he will pick me up, that he's got this. Then in verse 2 he goes on, Oh my God, in you I trust or I hope. Trust and hope can be be interchanged there. In you I hope or in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. And this is where he gets to to just the heart of his concern that he's going to take the whole rest of the chapter to deal with. He says, let me not be put to shame. And shame there, and and, and we don't always understand shame the same way, but we have to understand he's writing out of an honor-shame society where everything is about honor, and the worst thing that can happen to you is shame, where your reputation is shamed, or your name is shamed, or your family is is shamed. And, And the word shame there has this idea of being belittled, being humiliated, being disgraced, being devalued and rejected. There's five words that we all just want to sign up for, right? No, but do you start to feel the weight of what he's saying? Do you, do you start to feel where his soul is? Oh, Lord, my God, don't let me be put to shame. The things they are saying, the things that are happening, these things threaten to destroy me. There's a loss of social position in that culture that comes with shame. It affects every part of life. It affects family relationships. It affects friendships. It affects your ability to do business with people. That is the context here that David is saying, let me not be put to shame. He had to trust God with his reputation that he wouldn't be shamed, that he would be vindicated, that there would be honor there. He goes on to say, "Let not my enemies exult over me, or or gloat over me, or rejoice over me." It's like you know, football has started NFL, and and then the better option, college football. And um, but even yesterday, you know, someone makes a sack, and what do they do over the quarterback? They're like making, you know, the, they're in his face and rejoicing over him. And if you do it too much, you get penalized and all that. But That's the idea of what David's saying. Don't let my enemies do that over me. Lord, you know I'm falsely accused. You know I'm being attacked. Don't let them win. But the context here is he's putting his trust in the Lord for his reputation. He's letting God pick him up even when the situation threatens to pull him down. And so he's trusting God with the outcome rather than worrying about the fallout. Some of the the worries that I think he was dealing with as we explore the rest of the chapter, the things that keep coming up. What if my enemies win and I don't have enough strength to get through this? What if if it's all true and I'm not walking how God wants me to and he's going to deal with that? Or what if God sees my sin and it's just too much? Too much, and he can't, and God's going to abandon me, or he can't forgive me. These are some of the things that it appears are on David's heart as he writes the rest of the psalm. That's heavy, heavy questions. Hard questions. And I know when when you and I feel attacked, when you and I are in distressing situations, we can ask some of those same questions. It can be hard. And so in verse 3, we have his answer. And and these three verses sort of become a a microcosm of the rest of the chapter. In verse 3, Indeed, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. And he comes back to the, 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 the hope here is to wait on God. To do the right thing while walking with God is to wait on him, trusting him with the results. And so David says, you know what? I'm going to continue to obey God. I'm going to continue to do what God wants me to do, and I'm going to trust that God can handle the outcome of this situation. Now, the key there is continuing to do what God wants you to do, right? Not what I want to do, but what God wants me to do. And so this is not just say la vie, God's got it, and I can do whatever I want. This is living life by God's standard, as we're going to see in the next point and then watching God work. He talks about those that are wantonly treacherous, which speaks of betrayal, which speaks of deception, that those closest to him are some of the ones making these accusations. But he knows that his trust is in the Lord if he waits on the Lord. If you're in a situation where you're feeling attacked, where there's interpersonal um, conflict trust god for your reputation trust god for the outcome don't try to manage the fallout but do what's right and see what god does then in verse 5 four and five sorry he goes on to his next step and these are just good principles for us to follow because the next few principles aren't how to get revenge They aren't how to make the person pay. They aren't how to ostracize the person from from every part of my life. It's a very different attitude that is so helpful and so instructive to us. In verse 4, David says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Again, the whole psalm is about dealing when people attack. And so these are great verses on their own that we should know God's God's ways. But this is David's first step in dealing with conflict. And when people attack, he's like, I need to examine my own actions and compare them with the word of God. And that's point number two. Examine your own actions and make sure they are godly. Examine your own actions and make sure they are godly. We see David asking God for direction here. We see him asking God for, for what his paths would be, what his way of dealing with things would be. Make me know your ways, or, or show me your ways in some translations. Show me what you want me to do, God. And, and these, these are his requests to God. And so in the middle of it, as I give the outcome to you, but God's, look at my heart. Am I doing what I should be doing? God's truth is our guidance. Not, not emotions of hurt, not emotions of defensiveness. God's truth is our guidance. And this is where we see the Psalms informing emotions with truth. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. And there's a submission to this and asking God to teach us, to coming under God's authority. He's basically asking God, Lord, show me where I'm wrong in this situation. Show me what I've done in this situation. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. And he shows a real humility in this. It's dangerous to assume that we know everything. It's dangerous to assume that we don't need instruction. It's dangerous to assume that we are right. Those attitudes are never from God, but there is a a, a a submission to God's authority here. The basis of that is in the, the second half of five, for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all day long, all the day long. So, the, and the idea is, I wait for you always. I'm going to depend on you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to wait on you. But the foundation is he's the God of our salvation. He's the God that has saved us from the the penalty for our sin. He is the God that has brought us that believe in him to eternal life. And so if we can trust God with our lives and our eternity, perhaps just maybe we can trust him with the current situation we're in. That isn't eternity, that isn't dealing with the payment for all of our sins. But so many times we, we can come to church every week, and especially if we've grown up in the church, we can get the big stuff right. I, I have eternal life. I trust Jesus as my Savior. He died on the cross for my sins. But that doesn't translate into everyday life of trusting Him to accomplish His will in the situations we're part of. And we worry and we fret. I do too. But God, his ways are good. His ways are right. He is the God of our salvation. And so we can trust him. And so David's first step here is to examine his own actions, to make sure they're godly. And I so appreciate the direction he takes because it is so counter to what our emotions and what our self is. But but he's he's really showing us that times of attack or times of adversity often bring opportunities for reflection and growth. Catch that. Times of adversity or attack often bring opportunities for reflection and growth. And so the very thing that troubles us, the very thing that we are frustrated with God allowing in our lives might be a tool that he's using to help us grow and help refine us. But we've got to break through our pride and allow God to show us where we're wrong, where we need to grow. One um, one psychologist was studying why um, it's stereotypical for men to not ask for directions. I think it's pretty true. And he wrote this analysis on, on why why men would prefer to be lost rather than ask for directions we're not lost just saying that right up front and he lists eight explanations but he boils them down to insecurity and pride for his first two points are to ask for directions is to admit i am lost and to admit i am lost is to feel both anxious and incompetent and i'm like ouch but that's really true if i was ever lost <laughs> i'm just exploring Now, I know we don't have this as much with with, um, Google Maps. You probably still do a little bit if you use Apple Maps, but... um, (laughs) Sorry, I've had too many experiences with Apple Maps, leading me to a neighborhood for an in and out. I'm like, really? But perhaps we don't like asking for directions because it is to admit we're lost. It is to admit we have a need. It is to admit that we need guidance. And those are hard places to come. That's the first place David goes when attacked. What's my need? How do I need guidance? So we need to admit we need God's instruction and direction. Verses 6 and 7 gives the next stanza and the next place that David goes. Confess any unconfessed sins in your life. Confess any unconfessed sins in your life. This is still all under the category of what do we do when attacked? When attacked, confess any unconfessed sin. Remember your mercy, O Lord, verse 6. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. And and again, look for repetition as you study God's word and you get a remember, a remember not, and a remember here. Those are key phrases in these two verses. But he is asking God to see see him through his mercy, his covenant love, and his goodness, and to forgive him, to blot out any sins from his youth, from, from who knows how far back. David is using this attack in this time of feeling that distress to say, okay, God... I'm an open book. Show me. Not just show me what I should do in, in, the, in, in the guidance, but show me where I've blown it. Show me where I've sinned. Because this is my opportunity to deal with that. And so he calls on God's mercy. And it's fun because this particular usage of mercy, he's using a, a Hebrew word that's related to a mother's womb. And the idea of the, is the mercy and love of a mother. When when moms, when you're carrying your child, there is a a love and a mercy and a connection that is almost indescribable, right? And that's the word that that the psalmist is using. Lord, remember that kind of mercy for me. Even in my distress, even when I think that I'm being wronged here, remember your mercy, your steadfast, your covenant love that won't ever end. And out of those things, I'm asking you, God, remember not the sins of my youth. We would say, please forgive me. Forgiveness is to set it aside, to remember it not. And so he's confessing his past sins and he's, he's confident in God's forgiveness based on that mercy, based on that love that God will forgive fully, freely, and forever. And it's done And it's taken care of. I I think also as I look at these two verses, there's a challenge here that even in a conflict, in a situation, to say, okay, how have I sinned in this situation? What do I need to confess to God in this situation? Because it's so easy when we're attacked by someone else to only focus on them. And we forget that God's doing something in us. And so ask the question to God, show me how I've sinned and see what his answer is. You know, we sing a lot of songs about forgiveness this morning because it just ties into several sections of this psalm. But how could Jesus forgive our sins? How can he put them aside? How can he remember them not? And the answer was, was to come. In, in this case, David was looking forward to the Messiah, but eventually Jesus would come as, as the Messiah And on that cross, after living a perfect life where where he did not have to pay for sin at all because he never sinned, he hung on that cross and took our sins on himself. And how many of our sins could Jesus take? All of them. All of them. And so he took our sins on himself and he paid the penalty for those sins. That's how David could say this. That's how we can say it. That's how we can be confident that God will remember not our sins anymore because Jesus paid them off completely on the cross. And we can take that to the bank every time if we repent and confess our sins. First Peter 2.24 says, "...He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness." By his wounds you have been healed. And he's quoting Isaiah 53 there. By his wounds, by his death, by the cross, we've been healed. And so the forgiveness is a setting aside of the sins of our youth, setting aside what we've done if we will confess and humble ourselves and come to him, but also a healing. And so David here models being teachable, looking to God for instruction, and then here confessing unconfessed sin. Then we come to verses 8 through 11, point number 4. And from here, I I need to say, we could just do those three points and see how those are repeated through the rest of the chapter because he just comes back to these ideas of confession and forgiveness and instruction and how do I deal with enemies? And these keep circling back. But each time, he develops it a little bit more. And so we're not stopping after three points. We're doing six and seeing how, how he develops them. In verses 8 through 11... The point is, humble yourself to hear instruction and trust that God's way is best. Humble yourself to hear instruction and trust that God's way is best. And point number two, it was examine your own actions, make sure they are godly. And he's asking for guidance. But here he adds the idea of humility and the attitude that is required for that to happen. Verse eight, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners In the way, he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. And right there, he he appeals to the nature of God first that God is good all the time, he is upright all the time, we can trust him. But then he says he instructs sinners in the way, those that know that they are sinners. He leads the humble in what is right, those that know they don't have it all together and need his guidance. And he teaches the humble his way. And so he now begins to take this appeal to God's goodness and uprightness and say, you need that. That's not you, that's God. And so we need to humble ourselves before him. Isn't humility essential to be teachable though? When someone is prideful, when someone is full of themselves and think they have it all together, how much are you going to teach them? You can try. Not gonna work. Because only the Holy Spirit can work on that heart. Only the Holy Spirit can break that will. And, And again, we know this with others. And we can say, Oh, that person is closed. They're prideful. The psalmist is he's taking the attacks as a chance to look inward, and he says, Okay, am I humble? Yes, pride always stands in the way of instructions. Pride thinks our way is best. If we're prideful, when we get instruction, when I get instruction or correction, do I shut down? Do I close the person off and write them off? Or do I listen and say, God, what are you trying to teach me? Humility says I might not know the whole situation. There might be something that God is trying to do in my life. In verse 10, he says, All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. How many of the paths? All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. He will never act unfaithfully. He will never act in a way that breaks his covenant love for you. Never. And these should give us a confidence in him. They should give us really quite, quite a bit of comfort. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. For those who keep his covenant and his testimonies, for those that are his children, David is appealing to to his character. And then finally, verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. So we have the teachability in this. We also have the humility again to, to deal with sin. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Now, even in that statement, there's, there's a humility there where it's not for my sake, pardon my sin. But for your reputation, your name, and name can mean reputation here, for your reputation's sake, for your name's sake, pardon my sin. Because David knew when we sin, we put a mark on God's reputation in this world. We put a stain on God's reputation. And so David's like, I I need to deal with this sin for your name's sake. Pardon my guilt, for it is great. Another aspect of humility, humility doesn't treat sin lightly. Humility looks at my sin and says, my sin is great. As we've seen elsewhere in Scripture, Paul saying, I'm the greatest of sinners. And and he's not just saying that to get attention. When we are humble before God and we realize what our sin does to God and how it offends him and how it affects him, that humility makes us view our sin as great. But the beauty of that is, as we sang this morning, even great guilt, even great sin can be forgiven and wiped clean by a great God. Because his mercy is more. His mercy is more. And it doesn't matter what you've come into the building with today. It doesn't matter what you're dealing with or what frustrations or sin you're dealing with, what sin that maybe is in your past that is unconfessed and you're you're not even sure if God can deal with it, not even sure if you're worthy to be here. His mercy is more. His mercy wipes that out. Forgiveness sets that aside. But we have to come humbly to our God. Jonathan Edwards says this, Nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility, and so prepares the mind for true divine light without darkness, and so clears the eye to look on things as they truly are. i to repeat that one more time. I had to read it a couple times. Nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility and so prepares the mind for true divine light without darkness and so clears the eye to look on things as they truly are. Humility is key to seeing God's instruction. What I have found in my life is when there is crisis, when there is conflict, it's often God's scalpel to bring humility if I will let it. And so when we enter these situations, when we feel attacked, when we feel the the pain of all that, the first question is, what is God wanting to do in my life? Point number five is that we, we look at the next four verses. Use the situation to cultivate relationship with God. Use the the situation to cultivate relationship with God, and there, each verse has a different aspect that is cultivating this relationship. And each one of these could have been a point on their own, but if we went over a few six points, there'd be rebellion and um, yeah, weeping and gnashing of teeth. So um, just look at each of these verses. Verse twelve: Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. Again, you have this idea of instruction. Same three basic ideas. How do I deal with enemies? What instruction does God have for me? Where do I need forgiveness? Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him he will instruct in the way that he should choose. And and right here, and we're going to see it actually in verse 14 too, part of cultivating that relationship with God is cultivating a fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's also the beginning of relationship with God. It's essential to humility. All these concepts tie together. And and it's the idea of, of treating God as great, having a reverence for Him. But more than that, knowing that He is righteous, and when we are not, there should be a healthy fear there. But knowing that He is a great God and His mercy is more, all of that is part of the fear of God. A number of us just walked in the land where Jesus did. And we were on a boat on the sea where Jesus stood up and calmed the storm with his word. Where he walked across the water because of his power and his greatness. Where he cast out demons, where he fed thousands. These things should develop an awe for God. Because he is a great and holy and righteous and merciful God. And the psalmist says, who is the man who fears the Lord as he introduces this concept? Him he will instruct in the way he should choose. And in the context of this whole psalm being about conflict and being attacked, this is a fear of God far should outweigh the fear of man. Far should outweigh the fear of man. There's also in verse 12 an assurance of guidance, isn't there? That if we fear God, if we humbly come to Him, he will instruct in the way that he should choose. And then we get to verse 13. And and as we fear God, as he he instructs in the way, we now experience his peace. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. And there's promises there that God will take care of the outcome. God will take care of the results. Verse 14, then we get into the relationship with God. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. That is such a fantastic verse, because it says when we fear God, when we come to him humbly, when we wait on him, when we trust him in the direst of, of circumstances, we see who he is and his closeness to us. We see his friendship, a close relationship, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Not the subservience of of us to the Lord. And 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 we should be subservient to him. We should be under his authority. But here the psalmist is saying, as we draw close to him, we're in relationship with him. There's a friendship for those that fear him. He makes known to them his covenant. And the idea is sort of the secret that others don't know. His covenantal love, his covenant, his, his faithfulness to them. As David, David knew, as he drew close to God, that he would experience God's friendship, that he would experience God's covenant love in a way that couldn't be understood any other way. John fifteen fifteen, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. when we go through some really difficult times, in this case, feeling attacked, we will see God in a whole new way. I I, I think back over over the last 20, 30 years and just a number of the the difficulties we've had, not necessarily attacks, but trials. And one time someone asked me, if you could, would you get rid of all those? I said, I don't think so. I don't think so because God met us in a new and amazing way in each situation to where we knew that he is close and we knew that he is a friend and we knew that he has us in his hand. And so the psalmist in the middle of feeling attacked, he's using the situation to remember his relationship with God to experience it, to cultivate it, to grow that relationship. In verse 15, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. My eyes, my faith is ever for the Lord. I look to the Lord as a source of help. He is my focus. And he is the one that will pluck me out of the net or the snare, some of your your translations say those things that the enemy is trying to do to trap him, to bring him down, to distract him from who God is. God's able to deal with it all. He's able to protect him from the pitfalls of those traps. In fact, he's the only one that can take care of the pitfalls of those traps. And so David sees his relationship with God in a whole new way. Finally, as we look at the rest of the chapter, the last thing we see is David go back to, to addressing God directly in prayer. And so our, our response to follow his example should be to pray over every part of and every person in the situation. When we're faced with feeling attacked, pray over every part of and every person in the situation. Verse 16, 17, and 18. Turn to me and be gracious to me. And he's talking to God, and this is his prayer to God. Turn to me, be gracious to me. Let me feel that relationship, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged, he says. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. And we see forgiveness coming back in. We see how to deal with with those that are enemies coming back in. But he's sharing with God where he's at in an honest way. And these things might be the snare that he's, a feel, that he's feeling, the loneliness, the being, feeling afflicted or suffering or, or literally it means to be hunched up. And sometimes situations get us so clenched and so worked up that we just don't even know if we can survive. He's saying, God, be gracious to me. I'm feeling lonely. I'm feeling afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. I have a broken heart. There's despair of the heart here. I'm feeling distress. Lord, consider all that. And he just gives it to God in prayer. And then he moves in verse 19 to those that are are troubling him, the enemies again. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. And he ends by coming back to the beginning. And he says, that I, I feel like everyone's against me. They, they, they hate me with a violent hatred. That's pretty strong. This isn't just a hatred. It's a violent hatred. They're willing to put actions to their hate. But he's leaving it with God. And he says, oh, guard my soul. And deliver me. Because these kinds of situations can be so toxic to our souls. And it is a constant battle to give that to God, to give that to God. And the, the, we keep thinking about it and to give that to God. And, and this is how I am with situations. And I'm reminded, oh, God, guard my soul. Help me to give it to you. And deliver me. It's okay to pray for deliverance. It's okay for God to pray that God will take care of it. Let me not be put to shame. I trust you with the outcome because I take refuge in you. Village, when you are feeling what the psalmist is describing here, take refuge in God. And that's the idea of going into a strong tower that you're protected, that you're taken care of and letting God handle the situation. Verse 21, may integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. And there's all kinds of debate. Is this God's integrity and uprightness that preserves us or is it as we pursue integrity and uprightness preserve me? And I think the second of those options is probably the more likely here because he's already dealt with God's goodness, his his greatness, that he's upright. And here is this, this idea of guarding my soul and then may integrity and uprightness preserve me. And so in this situation, God, help me to act with integrity, even though every ounce of my being doesn't want to. Help me to act with uprightness, even though I just want the situation to end in revenge. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. And again, waiting on the Lord as you look throughout Scripture, it's always obeying and doing what God wants us to do while we trust him with the difficulty. And then he ends by expanding to all of Israel. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Redeem there means to buy something back, to pay for something. And he's asking God, redeem Israel because they have enemies. We have enemies. They're in trouble. And so it's a corporate prayer, asking God to renew their heart, to redeem them. Ultimately, this verse is answered in Jesus Christ on the cross as he pays for our sins. And I mentioned it earlier. What you don't see in David's approach to when people attack or when sharks attack what you don't see is revenge. You don't see an attack back. You don't see defensiveness. But how can I give this to God and improve my relationship with God through this? i want to end by reading Psalm 86, a similar passage. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your loving kindness, for your faithfulness that will not end and will not fail. Lord, as we encounter difficulties in this this fallen world, in this Genesis 3 world, as we encounter interpersonal conflict, as we at times feel attacked or uh, unjustly treated, help us to remember this psalm. And help us to use that as an opportunity to to allow you to examine us, to allow you to deal with any sin that is in our lives, to allow you to deal with any pride, any areas where we don't fear you and we don't trust you and we're holding on to that our our ways are better. Lord, refine us and make us more like you. Help us to, as you've commanded us, love our enemies, bless those who curse us. And in so doing, let you work on our heart and you be our defender. Thank you, Lord, for your promises. Thank you for your word and your name.